that ringing. Let's get there. Let me talk and get the ringing out. Okay. Yes. Let me see. Talk, talk. I'm still in pain in my back, but we'll survive here. Uh, what do you think? Think we're ready to go? Okay. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, I'll be reading Philippians 4, verses 14 through 18. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia... No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. It is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, instructive, life-giving word to our minds, our souls, and our lives. Father, help me first be faithful to the text in exposition. Help us see what's here, all that's here in your servant Paul's original meaning. And help us, therefore, be affected by the truth of it and the principles of it. And therefore, help me be faithful in restating it and unfolding it and applying it to your glory. Amen. Now, if you look all the way back down to verse 10, 10 through 18 as a whole is about our relationships with God in the context of the money that he allows us. We saw last time in verses 10 to 13, Paul's exhortation through his own example to learn the secret of being content in any and every circumstance, whether you're poor or whether you're filthy rich or whether you're somewhere in between. Christ is the secret through the journey of this life. That was 10 to 13. Now this morning, 14 to 18, Paul also knows that the way that the the church, the way that missions, the way that the, the gospel goes on and stretches in this world is through God's sovereign doing, through his people giving and paying for it. That's our text. Randy Alcorn, some of you know, or if you've read some of his books, 
In his book titled Money, Possessions, and Eternity, writes, quote, If we were the Bible's editors, we might be tempted to cut out much of what it says about money and possessions. Anyone can see it devotes a disproportionate amount of space to the subject. When it comes to money and possessions, the Bible is sometimes redundant, often extreme, and occasionally shocking. It turns many readers away. It interferes with our lives and commits the unpardonable sin. It makes us feel guilty. If we want to avoid guilt feelings, it forces us to invent fancy interpretations to get around its plain meanings. How could the Bible's author and editor justify devoting twice as many verses to money, 2,350 of them, than he does to faith and prayer combined? Didn't he know? What was really important? End quote. So, this is the first morning. I think we're going to be here at least three weeks. So, this morning what I want to do, two things. First, is give an exposition of the text that is before us. Work through it slowly to see Paul's intended meaning in its context. And then the second half of the sermon to concentrate on what we'll see there, Paul's point, that giving, giving to the gospel in this world is an essential part of worship. So, begin with verse 14. See the first word, yet. Which means it's connected to what he just said. Another word for yet in English is nevertheless. Meaning, even though what I just said, nevertheless this. In other words, Paul does not want them to draw the wrong conclusions from verses 11 to 13. When he said, even though Christ enables me, Paul, to be content when I can barely feed myself or when I have an abundance, even though that's true, I can do all things through Christ, nevertheless, that does not mean that you flipping your giving was unnecessary or unappreciated. That's the flow of the text. So in verse 14, nevertheless, he's saying, thank you. It was kind of you, literally, in the, it was good of you to help me in this dire circumstance here, which his severe circumstances, his trouble or affliction has to do with him paying rent and food and whoever else is working with him in Rome as he is in his own rented apartment awaiting trial with a Roman guard always in charge of him. Thank you. Verse 14. Then Paul switches from the Philippians giving being a, a benefit and a blessing to him. And he switches it to their giving being a benefit to them, the givers. 
Look at verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your a credit or account. Now, right before then, in verses 15 and 16, Paul shows there's a history here with Paul and the Philippian church. Verse 15, And you Philippians yourselves, you know that in the beginning of the gospel, he means when he brought the gospel there to them, in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, the region that you're in, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Now, that's what we just read there. Paul's really close friend, Luke, who was with him in the planting of church at Philippi. He most likely left Luke to pastor in that church. Because of what Luke writes in Acts, we really know exactly what Paul's talking about in what we just read. We know that Paul and his missionary band left Asia Minor finally and crossed over the Aegean in a ship and landed in the region of Macedonia. And they went first to the town of Philippi where Paul and Silas got beat up and thrown in jail and put in shackles and then finally escorted out of town. And then from there he went to the city of Thessalonica, also in Macedonia. Now, so now what Paul's saying here is that even by the time Paul just went down 80 miles to Thessalonica and started preaching the gospel there, planted the church there, before he left Macedonia and traveled down to Achaia, Corinth, and stayed there for two years in Greece, before that, just when he's in Thessalonica, the Philippians were sending money and supporting him within weeks. That's what he tells us. And then, after he had to leave the region, and he did, got on a ship, went down 200 miles, Athens briefly, and then to Corinth, where he stayed for the next two years. There was an ongoing special financial relationship between the Philippian church and Paul's ministry. A few years later, this is what he wrote to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians 11, 7 and 9. Well, Corinthians, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. Because the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. Particularly, he means that church, that city, Philippi, 
in Macedonia. And so he writes to them. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia and I went down to Corinth for two years, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And so now, in verse 17, Paul insists that, look, even though over all these years I am thankful, I am grateful, yet I'm not saying what I'm saying in order to manipulate more money out of you. I am really and actually thrilled at what will be credited to your account in your giving. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift. But I seek the fruit that your gift is producing, and that increases to your account. Paul is thrilled because of the fruit that their giving is storing away for them. Because by being so generous as they have been, they're acting like Christians, and God will reward them. This fruit he's talking about is not, if I give now, like on channel 40, then, man, my physical bank account down at Chase, or my mutual fund and is going to grow. It's not what he's saying. He's saying your, your, your retirement account and the resurrection will increase. Your reward of your joy in God will have compound interest because of what you do in the here and the now. It's God's work. It's God's ongoing grace continuing in their life, bearing the fruit of giving, and it will increase until Jesus comes back and their heavenly bank accounts with compound interest are waiting. That's what he's saying. And then, remember the beginning? He's basically saying, thank you. Very appreciative of this. And then he picks that up again in verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. In other words, I got the money and I'm now abounding. Thank you. I'm well supplied because of your generosity. And then again, Paul connects it to their relationships with God. See it? He does it by using worship language. You're giving is a fragrant, a sweet 
smelling offering. That's taken from the Old Testament imagery of sacrifices on the altar and burnt offerings is going up and God receiving them as sweet smelling to Him. And so Paul's saying, you're giving, thank you, I am well supplied, but it's mainly not toward me. It's mainly toward God. It's a sweet-smelling worship offering. He goes on, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So, in verses 14 to 17, Paul thanks them for the offering. But then he emphasizes that their giving is accumulating compound interest in God's kingdom to their spiritual benefit. In verse 18, he again says, oh, thank you, I'm well supplied but then he emphasizes that their gifts are vertical, worshipful, sweet-smelling, received, acceptable by God as pleasing to Him. Okay, that's the text. Now this morning, here's my main question. How is it that digging into our pockets, our income, our bank accounts, and releasing that to the gospel, how is that worship? Let's just start with Jesus at the well with the woman. You know it. Stay for those who worship appropriately. We'll worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So there's truth that comes and by spirit. What does he mean? The Holy Spirit of your spirit? The answer is yes, in this weird way here, because you cannot worship in your spirit as opposed to just mere external acts. Unless it's coming from your heart. So he says you cannot worship apart from spirit and truth. Meaning it is at the core of something going on inside of you. It is a treasuring of the truth of the gospel of God. Of the resurrection of the death of Christ. Of the promise of the age to come. It is something going on in you that says God is infinitely more valuable than all the treasures of this world. And then there's all these outward forms of worship. Keyboard and guitar and microphone and our voices. I saw my wife kneel earlier. Okay. Outward form there. Prostration. You can see this stuff in the Bible. There's what Paul says here. There's giving. There's all these forms of worship that are not worship. If they're not 
Worship in the Spirit. David got that in Psalm 51. He, he made an audacious statement. Sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings. Animals killed and burned for you. You don't desire God. What are you talking about? He told them to do that. But David got to the core by the Spirit. He meant, if my Spirit isn't loving you, in his context there, because of his sin, repenting, a broken and a contrite heart is what you're after. And once you got that from me, then I'll go do that. And that's where true worship, even with an animal sacrifice for David, was true worship, not because of the animal or not because of the money given, because of the heart that propels it. The point is essentially this. All of life, like Romans 1, everything you see and your response to it and how you live and how you walk and that you breathe and you give thanks for food and what you do with money, everything in life is meant to be a pursuit of those things showing our worship to God. And there's, no, look, there's nothing bigger in life, essentially, for all people, whether you're poor in Afghanistan today or you're rich like us today in America. All of life means that money and the stuff we have, that's a massive part of what this temporal life is. And the way, therefore, that we worship with our money and our possessions is to get them and to use them. You know what? If you use them to feed your family and thank God for it, that is worship. And to use them in all kinds of ways that show how much we treasure God. Now, I want you to turn over to the Gospel of Luke. And see this in Jesus' words. Chapter 12. I'm going to read verse 32 to 34. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Why? Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So let's work through that slowly. So we can see in Jesus' words why Paul calls the Philippians continual giving worship. Jesus says first, it's a command, fear not. Don't fear. In the context of the necessities of life, of money and things, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. When his followers, with all reasons to fear, find contentment 
because he's commanded us not to fear. What is it that you're looking to, as Peter would say? And then you tell them. And when Jesus tells them, tells us here to tell them, I have a shepherd. Fear not, little flock. Hear Psalm 23, don't you? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not fear. He is the provider and the protector. He's my provider. He's my protector. What he says goes. And not only that, he is, God is my father. It is your father's good pleasure. I have a relationship with him as a child. That's why I don't fear. He's king. It's your father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom. He is the king. He was raised from the dead. He is the son of David. He is ascended on high. And he is even right now with bloodshed and murder and atrocities going on in absolute sovereign kingship control. Don't fear. Shepherd connotes protection and provision to you. Father, his tenderness, his care, his love. King, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. And to the extent his people walk in that is to the extent they are what would I say? Uh, what do you look through? A looking glass into who God is through them. That's called worship. Fear not, little flock, because it is your Father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom. Now watch how that flows into what Jesus says next. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. Because it's not money in this world. That is, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief or stock market crashes, no moth destroys. So Jesus tells them, sell your possessions. And he said this in the context to his disciples, the vast majority of whom, Matthew might have still had some stuff, are not rich at all. He didn't tell us in that statement to the disciples how much to sell. You remember when the rich young ruler came to him, though, and again, this is descriptive. I'm going to argue, not prescriptive. Sell all that you own and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. He did say that. And he said it to that rich ruler, prince, 
But when Zacchaeus saw Jesus coming and got to talk to him, and he was rich and a tax collector, he said, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded, which he most likely did, if I've defrauded anyone anything, I will pay them back four times as much. So Zacchaeus gave 50%. Okay, again, descriptive here. And see, if you took and said, look at what he said to the rich young ruler. Well, let's all go sell our homes, cars, everything you own, empty your bank accounts and your retirement funds, and give it away. What would happen? How am I going to eat? How are you going to eat? Well, no, you, you, should, you should feed me. I'm poor. Okay, obviously, that's not prescriptive or wisdom. But if Jesus confronts you and tells you sell it all, you better do it. Because he knew what that guy needed to hear. Barnabas sold a field. I don't know if it's his only field. I don't know how many fields he had. I don't know what else he had. But we know he sold a field, took the money, and gave it to the Christian community. The Bible, it doesn't tell us. I'm just right now, I'm sticking exegetically with Jesus' saying here in Luke 12. Doesn't say. He didn't say how much to sell. Selling, all that means is you convert your, 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 your... any kind of asset you have into money and the money that you have, period. You got a car, what's it worth? 7000 It's You sell it and you got 7000 The point is this. There's a powerful impulse in the Christian life toward giving rather than to accumulate more. In the larger context, this is where Jesus told the parable of the guy who was, had so much business and the crops were going so well. His barns were too small. And he, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to spend the money to build bigger barns and it's going to be more of a profit stored up for me. And Jesus said, you fool. But the impulse that he's getting at with his people, it comes from treasuring God. That's all. The kingdom of God is like a man who found a treasure in the field, in which he then buried it and covered it up and ran home, sold all that he had to buy. The field. It is treasuring God as shepherd and father and king more than all the treasures and all the possessions of the world. And then, stay there in Luke 12, the third point of that text is this. One of the purposes of money is to maximize our treasures in heaven, not on earth. Sell your possessions 
and give to the needy, provide yourselves with IRAs and 401ks. Not, not in this world, but in true retirement, in the resurrection. Provide yourselves money bags that do not grow old. With a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. His connection is clear. Giving worshipfully down here, out here horizontally, you're worshipfully vertically, and you are accumulating, if it's worship, treasures, not money or things to buy, false gods within the future in heaven, but the rewards where your capacity for joy in God is being determined now in this life. It is, but using money is worship, saying, uh, we all know it, we all feel it. All human history has, you have to eat. You've got to have a shelter. You might want to go on vacation. You don't want to eat cat food when you're old. And all the complexities of this is, yet, God, let me worship you. With money. Let me show that you are more valuable than all the treasures and possessions of the world. And we can't miss Jesus' point. It's the way he thinks. It's the way he talked all the time. And here's the, the, of that passage is this. You cannot be too heavenly minded. One of the stories stupidest statements ever is you're too heavenly minded you're no earthly good Jesus appealed to being future heavenly minded and it did lots of good sell your stuff give to the poor help that person pay rent help those people now with devastation in their life Help Paul in Rome, Philippians, support him in the gospel. The people who are most powerfully persuaded that what really matters as they walk through this life is storing up treasures in heaven are the ones who invest. It's true. Look, and trust me, I believe in earthly investment. My daughter keeps begging me, Dad, you got to help me open up my IRA now. Yeah, so I wish someone would have told me that when I'm in my 20s. It's not sinful in and of itself to do that. It's wise in our culture. But the only reason people will start to do that when they do it, whether it's in their 20s or 50s, is because they get persuaded. I might be alive in the future then. And so they believe that, and therefore they act with their money. The only way people follow Jesus here is if they're persuaded that what he said is true and guaranteed. Or what Paul said, because he believed it. 
your giving, Philippians, is accumulating compound interest to your account. So the connection with worship is this. Jesus commands us not to fear. But he commands us, therefore, trust and maximize your future joy in God through the use of your money. Which means he motivates our giving by an appeal to our future joy which means that all of our uses of money become an outward sign of how much we delight in God above all other things. And that, therefore, is worship. And that's why Paul calls the Philippians giving worship, offering, sweet-smelling, acceptable to God. And Jesus sums up that whole dynamic of worship in verse 34. For, that means here comes an argument, where your money treasure is, there will your heart be also. In other words, human beings, your heart moves toward what you cherish. Like the guy who built bigger barns. It was true for him. Revealed his heart. You fool. You're going to be dead tonight and face God. And God wants each of us to move toward Him. Those words of Jesus are given is the reason why we should pursue treasure in heaven. Why? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's the logical flow. You flip it around, start it backwards it's the same logic here's the truth Jesus declares the way you handle and deal with your treasure and your money where your treasure is where it's going that's where your heart is and therefore here's a flow sell your possessions my disciples give to the poor and you'll store up treasures in heaven what we really cherish is where our heart really is. Whether it's with God in heaven or with the things money can buy here on earth. That's what Jesus meant when he said in Luke 6.13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
You cannot serve God and money. To serve money means to cherish money and to pursue all the benefits that money can give you. And that's what you look to. And so the heart goes after money, what it buys, its temporal pleasures. But to serve God means you cherish God and you pursue all the benefits that God is to you. And so the heart goes after God. And that's worship. A heart going after God above all the earthly treasures and bank accounts of the world. So on this first week, let me just say, let us continue to follow the Philippians' example, knowing that in our giving, there is fruit increasing to our accounts, treasures accumulating in heaven, and that our ongoing support of the gospel is worship. It's a worshipful, sweet-smelling offering, acceptable and well-pleasing to God, if by our giving we are saying, I trust you as my shepherd, my father, my king, so that I will not be afraid when I have less money for myself by investing in heaven. With this offering, O Lord, I'm declaring that my treasure is you, the gospel. My treasure I really care about. Oh yes, I deal wisely with this world, but I care about my treasure in heaven. And my heart, oh Lord, is after you. Not that I seek the gift, Paul says, but I seek the fruit that increases to your account. Let's pray. So Father, help us. Your children continue to walk with you, continue to find joy in our giving and investing in heaven by investing in the truth of the gospel with tangible, concrete possessions, money. Oh, Father, let the worship of us, your saints, be the evidence of your wonderful work in our lives as we hear the voice of our shepherd say, fear not, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Amen.